Friday Lunchtime Lectures at the Open Data Institute. Hi everybody, welcome to the ODI. I'm Hannah Folds, Head of Marketing and Membership here. And um, it's a real pleasure to, and I'm really excited to uh, invite um, who the Times calls the world's only drill engineer. So thanks for coming in, uh, Brendan. Um, so Brendan will be talking about um, his projects over the last 20 years, uh, which I assume means that you started when you were five. Four. So just a bit of uh, boring housekeeping before we start. Um, uh, if you were sort of self-isolating at home, watching on the live feed, uh, please use hashtag ODI Fridays and let us know how you feel about the talk, uh, ask questions, um, and I'll read the questions out at the end. And if you're in the room, please wait for the end of the talk uh, before asking questions so that I can pass you the mic and people on live uh, stream can hear you. Over to you, Brendan. Brilliant, good. And um, if uh, you're not self-isolating, you're just at home, uh, also please tweet. Um, now, um, and also make sure you've uh, downloaded the latest antivirus software as well. Um, so, um, yeah, thanks for the introduction. Um, I'm known as the world's only thrill engineer. And when I was invited by Hannah Redler to give a talk about my work, I thought it was a, an opportunity to look at um, some of the other pieces of work I've created around uh, this persona of being a thrill engineer. And Hannah Redler originally met at the Science Museum when she was curating there, and she um, commissioned some piece of work which I worked on, which were two electrical, uh, electromechanical installations. Um, I was working for a design firm called Hollington's at the time. Um, I was originally trained as an aeronautical engineer, then retrained in industrial design, uh, and then in, in interaction design. Uh, but my passion's always been large mechanical installations. And at the Science Museum, something quite special happened. Um, it was the, the Welcome Wing. It was opening in 1999. Um, the image on the right here was called um, DigiDot, which was looking at the binary nature of data. And it was using uh, computer vision, turning that into a shadowy image of the person performing in front. And it was using this electromechanical display board, which you, you'll see at tennis matches. On the left-hand side, there was a, a food processing conveyor belt. Uh, and it was called Chips Inside. And there were digital uh, artifacts on it. And people had to guess which of the artifacts had digital technology inside. And there was a, an x-ray machine on the back side of this machine. Um, but the thing that really started to excite me was the emotional engagement that people were having with these electromechanical experiences. Um, and I wanted to know more about that nature of the, uh, of the thrilling experience and the relationship be between the mechanical, the data, and, and human emotional experience. So the first project I'm going to show, and it's one that people often say, as a, as a thrill engineer, why did you ever do this project? Well, it's because... I, it, I used it to explore the subtler natures of thrill. In fact, here, I'd start, this is my persona as the world's only thrill engineer. As you see, I'm not in a red boiler suit today. I'm kind of off duty. So the first project I'm going to show is um, for Hastings Pier Charity. Um, now, when Hastings Pier was being renovated, um, the CEO of the pier at the time, Simon Opie, who I'd worked with at... The, um, at Alton Towers and also other uh, Two Swords uh, group brands. Um, he 
asked me or invited me to create some work for the pier, which through conversations we decided uh, was to make people, make the public, make the local public fall in love with the pier again. Because obviously you can see here it's been neglected. Uh, a lot of money was needed to be invested, uh, which needed to be raised locally as well as nationally to renovate the pier. Uh, I was initially interested in the groins. You can see here the, um, uh, these, these uh, wave breaks along the shore. And I wanted to create a piece of sculpture that was, had a relationship to the pier, to the people on the beach, to the, uh, to the waves. And I started to look more into the waves. And particularly there was a, a Gavin Pretapini who wrote a book, Wave Watching, it was a real inspiration. He talks about the waves not only as a natural phenomenon, but also the relationship between art and artists who've studied and, and lived with the waves. Um, there was one particular artist that I was most interested in. It was Turner. And this is another pier. This is a pier in Calais over the other side of the English Channel. And Turner, uh, quite uh, notably, uses uh, waves as a kind of metaphor for, for human emotions. And in fact, actually, uh, in this particular painting um, at, at Calais, on a pier at Calais, you can see the fishermen uh, on the boats, you can see the people uh, on the pier. Some are excited, some are really apprehensive, some are very scared. And again, this turmoil of emotions is kind of reflected in the sea. And there was something about the, the human eye being able to read the seascape uh, and interpret this kind of emotional quality uh, in the sea that, that fascinated me. Uh, the picture on the right here um, also intrigued me. Um, the, the pier is made uh, on some very special pieces of engineering, which Eugenius Birch had designed uh, way back in the 18th century, and, and the, the, the pier was on these pillars which were sunk into the ground below. And the, the attrition and the, 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 the beating that these uh, structures get uh, is quite phenomenal. And so there's an engineering aspect to the pier as well, which, having been trained as an engineer, intrigued me. And it just so turns out that there's, a, um, there's an equation called Morrison's equation which relates the size of the wave to not only the depth of the water below it, but also the power that's contained in that water. It is actually possible, using the human eye, to read the seascape and understand the power that's contained in that sea and also its ability to act upon humans who might be in that environment. And so, for me, it became a very... Uh, it became a simplified project. Uh, down to the state of, because I was talking to a computer scientist who wanted to use uh, broad spectrum analysis of the sea, they wanted to use connects to, to map the sea and, and all its amazing glory and, and movement in three dimensions. I realized I only used to use one sensor, it was a laser sensor, which uh, we positioned off the end of the pier to monitor the waves below the pier. And from that single stream of data, uh, we were able to, not only to determine uh, the state of the sea, but also the power of the sea that was in there. And using a, uh, a um, frequency analysis, we were able to break down this, this stream of data into, into various components, large undulating waves, smaller 
waves that had a, a higher frequency, right down to ripples, which were moving very fast. And the idea of this was to go from one very simple stream of data to make that available uh, over the web. So we were using a, a data broadcasting system called PubNub. I was working with scientists at, at the University of Nottingham. And we were going to make this available to all sorts of projects uh, around, locally around. So on the right-hand side here was a proposal for um, uh, project kits that local school children could plug into this, this data stream and start to create, that, create their own projects using this live data that was being streamed um, from the end of Hastings Pier. And in fact, the, the sensor here was made by uh, Middlesex University, who I was working with as well at the time. Um, that side of the project didn't get realised, but my own project that I made, which was exhibited not only in, in, Hastings, in Hastings at the, the Visitor Centre, but also, in fact, uh, that year uh, in Liverpool, um, I think it was 2015, um, where it became a project called Storm in a Teacup, where I took um, something which was something from my own childhood, which was memories of being in um, a bedsit, it was not really a bedsit, a bed and breakfast, I should say, uh, in, in the seaside town, British seaside town, uh, it being raining and quite horrible outside and having to sit for longer periods indoors than you might like to do. Um, and so this, this image of this tea service that was happening, um, uh, and they all had, these different installations had different mechanical components in them which were all driven by the data. Uh, so we were, I had one teacup which, uh, which stirred uh, tea in harmony with the, the medium frequency waves. The, the chocolate bourbon biscuit was being lowered into the cup, which was related to tidal level. So after seven hours, the biscuit might actually go into the tea. And then there was some higher frequency um, movement, which was the, the tea bag, which was being erratically dipped into the teacup. And it was, the, it was because it was devoid of any people in this installation, yet it was very personal in the sense that drinking tea and, and it was very personally lit, that it was quite emotive, it was quite uh, ghostly in a way. Uh, and that's something that really attracted me to it. It was how people started to perceive this data and the fact that it was live, but also that it was very performative as well. Um, and that, that for me was uh, the thrilling aspect of how people might engage with this single stream of data and also the, the history of, of Hastings Pier. Now, that same technique that we used, uh, which was broadcasting data live and wirelessly, occurs quite a lot in my work. Uh, this project here is called Duality, One Body, Two Brains. Um, it came just as the emotive headset, uh, which is uh, a um, consumer-grade uh, EEG monitoring headset so I could monitor 14 channels of brain data. Um, I was kind of interested at that time in understanding human responses to uh, horror. And in fact, I was commissioned by a horror film festival in Nottingham, the Mayhem Horror Film Festival, uh, to produce this piece of work. Now, the idea was quite simple. There was a brain, uh, which was in a bell jar. Uh, the brain was made from a gelatin, which is actually the only... Uh, substance which is known to be able to support synaptic energy outside the human brain. I had this sculpture in the, in, in, in the bar and my brain data as I watched horror films was streamed live uh, uh, to, the, uh, to the brain and animated 50, uh, six, sorry, 14 lights in the, in the brain itself. 
And it was to give, again, it was, it was quite impressionistic, but it was to give an idea of the, uh, the emotional response that I was having and other people were having to this uh, horror film uh, that people outside the cinema couldn't see. Um, but it also had a, a, a technological um, interest to me and also the people I was working with at, at the university who were developing the system, that this system was made to be uh, massively scalable. So the data uh, was going from one point source, me, to the brain, but also because we were broadcasting this, we were interested in being able to scale this up so that millions of people could see the data. And that was why I was actually at the time working with, uh, with TV production companies. And they have this thing, obviously, if nobody's watching, let's say if they're watching um, uh, embarrassing bodies or something on TV, and they're like, so there's uh, the program starts, nobody's watching the data, and then suddenly five, you know, let's say 1.5 million need to watch uh, heartbeat data live being streamed live and wirelessly. Then at the end of the show, nobody wants, wants to watch it. So it's that ability to be massively scalable which is also uh, being explored uh, in this piece of work. Now, that, that sort of complexity of brain data actually started, uh, my relationship with biomedical data started about uh, in around 2006. And this project, which was funded by the Wellcome Trust, was called Punter's uh, Auto Portraits of Fairground Thrill. Uh, the machine I made, the, the auto portrait machine, um, was created, or I created it to, to take photographic portraits of riders on fairground rides. Um, it was triggered using uh, a technique called galvanic skin response, uh, which is when the body becomes aroused uh, and ready for action, it stimulates our own autonomic nervous system. Uh, our hands become a little bit sweaty as well as our heart starting to beat faster. And I could detect that. So I was working with a scientist from MIT called James Condren, and, and we could detect that. And I was looking for massive and large increases in arousal because through my research into thrill, I knew that that was a, a key signifier for a moment of thrill. And I wanted to fire this single-use camera, this, this, uh, this chemical camera, uh, with a single flash to take a photograph of the, the rider's face at that moment in time. So I was looking for a single data point as we were sort of analysing the data as it was coming off the, off the fingers. Um, the, uh, it was an artistic project. It was funded by Wellcome Trust. Uh, but the range of photographs range from uh, mania. Uh, this person is in the audience, by the way. Um, kind of a, a, an expression of mania, uh, more of delight. And these, these guys were actually going around on these rides Quite, quite a speed. Um, bliss and out of body. Um, and that technique I developed uh, over the next couple of years, started to work with um, clients such as Olsen Towers. So this was uh, on a ride, some experiments done on a ride called Oblivion. But now we weren't just taking single snapshots in time. We were recording uh, facial expressions over longer periods of time. Uh, we were recording medical data over longer periods of time. We're either taking those recordings to create new work based on those recordings, or we're starting to stream the, this data live and wirelessly, either to people who are watching uh, in the audience or live online as well. Um, this particular project here was uh, commissioned by the BBC. It was um, actually for Blue Peter. We did a a Blue Peter two-part special. Um, and they asked me, could I survey UK rides to determine which ride for their presenter, Andy, was the most thrilling? 
So we used this uh, data and worked with the TV production company to be able to embed our data live into their production suite and to start to use the data to complement the video of, of the presenter's face, but to also tell another story, a, a data story, to start to let people uh, almost see the, un the invisible emotions that Andy was portraying. Because the, the face, actually, there's 43 different muscle groups in the face, and that is the most important tool for being able to, humans being able to broadcast emotions from one person to another, whether that's one-to-one -one or recording it and broadcasting it to many other people. Um, but I was interested in adding these layers of data and what more could we bring to this, uh, uh, this kind of vicarious experience as people were watching these uh, episodes unfolding. Um, it turned out that the, the ride that was the most thrilling was called a, a ride called Rage, which was an adventure island. So it's a ride type called, um, it's a Eurofighter-style ride, which is uh, made by a company called Gerschlauer. And I'll come on to this ride again later. But the reason it was the most thrilling is because it created the most densely uh, packed amount of changes in the ride. And uh, as humans, if we're looking to design thrill, we need these rapid changes. And these are the kind of things I was looking to do to detect in the medical data as it was being streamed uh, from the riders. Uh, I also, I touched on TV. Um, I, I produced a uh, pilot for a reality horror TV show. This is called The Experiment Live. It really riffed on um, my love of the, uh, well, particularly Aliens, which was the, the, the sequel to Alien, the film. And there's, there's a great clip in there where the, the soldiers are sent out to f uh, the, in their first battle uh, encounter with the alien horde, the alien nest. And you can see all the medical data of the different uh, soldiers. And there's a, a couple of minutes where the only... Uh, emotional engagement we have with those individual characters comes through their stream of biomedical data which is on screen and we don't know what that data necessarily means but there is something about the seismographic activity going on there that we know lots of movement somehow means there's stuff going on flatlining could mean you're dead or calm, you never know. Um, or you've lost data, which is something, again, we use to dramatic effect in this, in this one-hour exploration where I recruited four amateur paranormal investigators. I kitted them all up with medical data monitoring, sent them down into a haunted basement with a camera crew, and we streamed this show live uh, into a local cinema uh, and it played this this, uh, this this paranormal investigation played out um, over an hour. And any of you who know um, the um, Ghost Watch, uh, Stephen Volk's uh, production for BBC in the late 80s, and the controversy of, of live paranormal investigations uh, portrayed as real on TV, um, this is, uh, I was trying to evolve uh, that, 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 that format into something which included data, which was embedded in the, in the in this sort of emotional narrative. And I also use these techniques for, uh, to work with clients who value the element of, of thrill or emotional engagement in their brands. So this, this project here was for uh, Nissan Duke, Built to Thrill. Um, I worked with them uh, over a long campaign with their advertising agency. We create, created a series of uh, online advertisements of both conducting experiments on the driving experience, 
uh, but also portraying the experience with, with live graphical interpretations of the data uh, as it whizzed around um, with the driver in the car. So let me come on to the uh, adaptation. So we can use data to be able to analyse an emotional experience, but can we use data to create a biofeedback uh, to be able to adapt a ride experience? And th this particular ride here is called Bucking Bronco Adaptive Ride Experiment Number 1. Um, it's anybody who knows the Milgram experiment, which was into power and control, where the operator had to inflict uh, ever-increasing levels of uh, electrical shock as punishment for getting answers wrong. Uh, had ethical implications. Um, I was asking my punters to control the pleasure of a hidden rider uh, behind the screen. Uh, and they were only able to control the ride using their own interpretation of the medical data that they saw that was being presented to them on the screen in front. So they both had, they could see their face, they could see their heart rate, and they could see the EMG, the, the activation of the, the muscles uh, on the face. The zygomaticus uh, major, which is the smile muscle, and the corrugator supercilia, which is the frown muscle. So they give you a, an, an indication of pleasure uh, in, in an experience. Um, that particular experiment went on to become, uh, we, we hacked the, um, the control system and then we created another version which actually made real uh, interpretations of the data to control the ride. But my question was quite fundamental, saying if a human operator can't make decisions about controlling the pleasure of a rider, how is a computer ever supposed to understand how to uh, control the pleasure of a rider. Arousal's easy because you can turn the speed up and down. It's a little bit more reactive, but pleasure's much more subjective. Um, thinking just of arousal, um, this, this ride uh, experiment was called Breathless. Um, it was um, a ride which explored um, the relationship or the tipping point between uh, thrill and fear and anxiety. Um, I adapted gas masks, changed the, the respirator uh, to uh, include um, breathing monitoring equipment. So I could monitor the amount of gas going in and out of the, the participants' lungs. Um, that data was streamed live and wirelessly over a Wi-Fi network. So I had 20 of these headsets. Once they were on a Wi-Fi network, I could just see gas moving around between different participants as they wore the gas masks. And the experiment I created, or the ride I created, was uh, a very tall swing in an outdoor um, uh, hangar. And the swing was powered by a motor at the top, which would put power into the swing. And if you breathed in harmony with the swing, the swing would go higher and higher. So as you went, the motor would put energy in and out, exhale. And very naturally, the swing would get higher and higher to put more energy in. But then people would start to become scared. And you'd re reach a, a natural state of equilibrium. That when they become scared, they hyperventilate. They can't breathe in harmony with the ride. And so there's less power being put in, or in some cases, power being taken out. So it was a, a self-equalizing uh, ride system, which would reach the pinnacle of arousal 
uh, for, for each of the participants, which sounds great. Uh, until then, once they'd seem to have mastered that, then the power and control of the ride was shifted to the person who was sat next to the ride, who quite often was uh, an unknown masked stranger. Uh, and that, that sort of really shook up the system. And it was actually based on um, a painting by Fragonard called The Swing, where there are three protagonists in the, in the painting. There is the, the woman on the swing uh, having a great time. There's her fiancé in the, uh, the background, who's a bishop, who's putting power into the swing using the pull ropes. And then there's a third person, another protagonist, who's the... the um, the, the figure in the bushes who's supposed to be this woman's lover. And there's a, there's a relationship between the thrilling experience these three people are having, which are over and above the physical experience that they're having just because of the, the visceral experience of the swing itself. So I'm interested in the social mechanics of, of thrilling experiences and how um, data such as, for example, breathing, when it's amplified and revealed, how that plays into uh, the creation of... Um, uh, a performance of, of human emotions. And this approach to ride experiments really reached ahead in 2016 with a ride which was um, commissioned by Nesta for their Future Fest. Um, I took the, the brain monitoring uh, that I was so intrigued in um, and thought, could I create a ride? Um, so I, I made Neurosis, uh, which was the world's first uh, brain-controlled thrill ride. Uh, the brain data I used to create a, a virtual world. So this was around the time when the DK1, uh, the Oculus DK1, uh, became available. And a lot of my work actually tracks um, technological developments because I'm quite keen, as has been the tradition in, in the fairgrounds, that, that technology gets consumed very quickly and played with very quickly in the entertainment industry. Um, so I was experimenting as an artist uh, playing with this uh, equipment. So the data was being used to create a virtual world uh, which became a tunnel where brain data was used to uh, create rules about how the tunnel was created which would emerge in front of the rider. The rider was riding on a uh, Stuart platform which is a, uh, a motion simulator, a six degree of motion simulator which is a piece of equipment uh, that I designed and produced with Middlesex University. And so not only did you start flying through your brain data, but also you were actually viscerally moving through it. And as a spectacle, there were 100 people in the room who could see you sat on this podium. It was a real celebration of brain data. The light show uh, was also linked to the live brain data as was the music. So we created neurogenerative music that went alongside uh, this, this immersive uh, spectacle. And it was getting um, very exciting, but it was getting increasingly complex, the relationships I was exploring between uh, human neurology, biology, physiology, emotional state, biofeedback, audience engagement. Um, but there's something much simpler, I thought, um, when I was actually asked to restage the ride. I thought, this can't continue, this level of complexity. And there's something interesting about rides themselves. If you look at uh, Rage, which was the ride that uh, won in the Blue Peter Challenge, um, if you look at this particular curve, which is called a Cobra Roll, which was uh, designed by Werner Stengel, who uh, founded uh, Gerschlauer, 
Uh, if you compare it to the vestibular system on the left-hand side, which is made up of three uh, semicircular canals, which can all, um, which can all determine uh, rotational acceleration, and the otoliths, the straight canals, which can determine linear acceleration, you can see how Werner Stengel absolutely uh, maximizes the body's own ability to be able to process data, uh, th this movement data. And actually, if you um, had no other stimulus, no other input, if you blindfolded someone on a roller coaster, their arousal levels would track very, very closely to the changing levels of g-forces and the accelerations in the ride as they twist and turn around. Um, so we've already got a direct connection into the brain. If only we could monitor the movement that's happening, we don't need to understand, bring it out, analyze it, put it back in. If we're just looking at arousal and body movements and visceral experiences, we've already got that hard wire there, ready to use, ready to, to, to capitalize on creating new thrilling experiences. And very much in the way that uh, computer controllers are able to monitor pitch, roll, yaw, uh, heave, sway, can't remember the sixth one, somebody will tell me. Um, we can actually use accelerometers and gyroscopes to be able to uh, determine these. So if we have a system that can mimic what our brain is able to experience, maybe we could uh, create systems that are somehow inaligned. And this reminded me of um, an experiment which was reviewed in the Psychological Review in 1985. It was a, a ride called The Haunted Swing, which had been patented just two years earlier by uh, a chap called Lake. Um, in The Haunted Swing, people go into a room, they get onto a gondola, they start to swing backwards and forwards. Um, everything seemed fine. Uh, but what they didn't know was that the room itself was also on a hinge. And the room, as you were swinging forwards, the room would start to swing backwards ever so slightly. All the objects in the room were glued down. And so the, the visceral sensation you, you had uh, and the, your vestibular system was telling you, yes, I am moving. Your visual system was telling you that you're moving a little bit further than your vestibular system probably would itself. And over a period of uh, several swings, the amplitude of the swing got to such a state that people did feel that they were doing a full loop the loop. And so there was a mechanical system here uh, that, that really intrigued me. The relationships between visual image, visceral experience, and the theater of what was being created here uh, intrigued me. Um, so over the last two years, I've simplified my work right down. I'm uh, utilizing that link between the vestibular system and the brain and our ability to sense of movement through space. I've been working, I started off working with the swing so just constraining myself to one degree of feed freedom out of all six that we can work with, and started to concentrate more on the visual spectacle. Um, how could I make the body, or sorry, the mind, reinterpret what the, the, uh, the vestibular system is telling us to make it think it's doing other things? And I'm not just talking about rotating backwards and forwards. Uh, there are other illusions that we can start to create uh, to make people believe that they're doing. So last year, I was commissioned by the City of London Corporation uh, for the celebration of Leonardo da Vinci's 500th anniversary. I created a series of rides which were shown around London, outside St Paul's and other places all the way up to the Barbican. 
and these swings appeared around the city, and each of these installations celebrated a different form of uh, flying machine that da Vinci had uh, designed. A glider, I made people who were in my VR experience who were just swinging on a swing. A glider made you feel as you're swooping, uh, increasing speeds through an alien landscape. The helical screw made you feel that your forces on the swing were making you ascend into the heavens. The ornithopter made you feel like you're a, a bird flying across the sea. And the parachute, you were shot up in, in a cannon only to, to float down. And so it was again the relationship between the visceral experience, but also then the, the movements that people I wanted people to experience and how I could choreograph those to create an emotional experience. And this technique now of being able to track people on rides. So now I am only using uh, the accelerometers and the gyroscopes that are available in mobile VR headsets. Um, again, I've been accused, or rather challenged, let's say, in the past, that I'm not using the very latest technology or the highest end. Um, but I don't think um, that, for me, isn't where... Um, where my interests lie. My interests lie in the scalability and the accessibility of what I create. And the mobile VR headset is fantastic. It includes all the sensors I need to be able to determine somebody's uh, immediate visceral experience. Um, it's also widely available around the world. And it means that anything, any ride I produce, I can my thrill ride now becomes reduced to a piece of code which I can send wirelessly to anybody globally. They can download it, put it on their headset locally, and then play my, my thrilling experience on a local swing. Um, and I've been developing this, this system. It's now patented. It's uh, Studio GoGo. It's called uh, GoGo XR. We're able to uh, determine on any, well, several fairground rides that we're working with, we're able to determine, a little bit like a, a satellite navigation system works, because the system is constrained, the mechanical system is constrained, we're able to determine where in the ride's path somebody will be. So this, this is a, a ride called the twist, central pillar, and then off it there are three arms. At the end of those there are another four arms that come off, and it describes the sort of serpentine paths. And because the, the, the pattern is repeating and regular, we can build up a, a simulated picture of that. But critically, it's the relationship between the emotional experience, which is related to um, our levels of arousal, which you remember are absolutely in line with our ex experience of uh, G-forces, uh, and not only our experience, but our perception of the G-forces. So on this ride, if you feel that you're going around like this, I actually, in my experience, one of the things I'm doing is make, making people feel that they're flying right out. And the levels of thrill go up higher and higher. So this is something I'm looking at, increasing the levels of thrill that pre-existing rides, like the Twister, and this ride is celebrating its 80th anniversary this year, that rides like the Twister now can be boosted, their levels of thrill can be boosted. And it is by understanding that direct link that we already have between our, our body's own uh, ability to sense the world and how that's hardwired to the brain, and then just finding the simplest set of additional data that can be added to what we already have to amplify or augment uh, our thrilling experience of the world. And that's it. That's where I'm at. This experience, hopefully, is going to be revealed at a, an amusement park 
uh, this summer. Can't quite say where it's going to be, but watch this space. And I'd love you all to come and take a ride when we're live and operational. Thank you. Thank you, Brendan. Uh, talking about visceral reactions, when you mentioned Ghostwatch, I had so many nightmares about that as a kid that, <laughs> that gave me a real visceral reaction there. Um, but obviously, being on a thrill ride is quite a personal experience. It's, kind of, it's probably when you're at your most vulnerable, I'd expect. So how do people react to you um, sort of gathering data about that very vulnerable reaction that people give? What, what's their sort of first first response to you? Um, I, think, I think historically place, um, fairgrounds and theme parks have been places that people will go and experiment socially. It's, it's, a, it's of great interest to ethnographers because at the gate we park a lot of inhibitions. So you tend to find that people who pass that threshold into the, the, into the park um, are really, well, for want of a better word, really up for it. So that's the first thing. So people are going, great, this is actually part of uh, the experience. We get to see what's happening to us. Uh, and, and this is the, one of the reasons I created Thrill Laboratory, which is this persona and the, this organisation that I have, which um, undertakes these kind of studies, but also as, a, a, as an act of performance as well, which it is, but also we are gathering and looking at data uh, both for, for research purposes as well. But there's another uh, implication to what we did. As soon as we created a live link between somebody who, who's on a ride, in fact, there was one ride at the Science Museum called the, the, the Booster, which is very 80 metres tall. Um, you can usually hear somebody on the booster, a very faint sort of scream, ah, like that. But when you've got a video feed coming down to the operator and people in the uh, audience, and suddenly you're seeing their heart rate data, you're seeing this person screaming, and, I want to get off. And they suddenly turn to me going, should we stop the ride? And I go, no. And that, that's always been my, go, no. Um, <laughs> there, there has been, because there is a, um, and it, there are ethical implications of this, because uh, computer scientists I work with going, you've got to get them off. I say, no. There has been a contract, and it's unwritten, that when people enter a theme park, there is a, an element between perceived danger and actual danger. It's a grey area. And nobody is going to be in actual danger, but people want to be challenged, and they are vulnerable, and they are a spectacle, and it is very public, but that is why they are there. And I think people who go to these places, uh, that is the unwritten contract. Yeah, thank you. Has anyone got any questions in the room? Otherwise, I've got um, lots that I want to ask. <laughs> so, you've got one there. Um, it won't amplify your voice. You're just uh, speaking into it for the benefit of the live stream. Yeah, I was wondering which technologies, technological developments have had the most impact on your work, would you say? Um, let me think. Technological uh, innovation. Well, it's funny. The, the, um, the, the piece of technology I bring out most often, galvanic skin response, has been around you know, since, uh, I think, the 1800s with Galvani uh, uh, looking into that. And, and the, the equipment I often use might even be from the 1970s. And I can kind of like, there are some very simple things that I can hack into. But as far as most recent developments, I'd have to say um, it's more to do with a lot uh, telemetry. So it essentially, it wasn't the sensors themselves, but it was the ability to be able to stream live and wirelessly 
uh, in quite aggressive outdoor experiences. So the kind of technology that's being used on Formula One race cars and that, that ability to send data between two points uh, in quite messy environments, um, that's been a big boon because a lot of the early stuff we were, we were sending uh, via analog signals. Um, and as far as body monitoring goes, um, I've actually lost my, my, a little bit of the love I had with biomedical monitoring because of the, uh, the, the, the reduction in the size. You know, you can get GSRs, you can get heart, heart, galvanic skin response, heart rate monitors, etc. In in wrist sports watches. Yet, when you try to say to people, when you're performing an experiment, people want to see stuff. And uh, so there's some tension there. Now I actually, which is one reason I quite often go back to old equipment. Um, but certainly when aspects like the, uh, the emotive, uh, when things start to become into the uh, consumer uh, arena, and particularly when you can get SDKs for stuff, which is basically, it, it, you know, I'm sure most of you know, but you know, the ability to be able to start developing with these things and get access to that raw data stream that, for me, is uh, absolutely critical. Any company who locks down their data or it has to go via their servers, and et cetera, et cetera, uh, absolutely crippling development. So I think that it's, it's working with manufacturers or finding manufacturers who have open data. Yeah. Any more questions from the room? Um, kind of following on from what you were just saying, um, is there sort of a feedback loop of the data that you're collecting? So if, for example, if you're funded by the Wellcome Trust um, and exploring certain reactions through your projects, mm -hmm. does that, do you feed that data back into um, any research that they might be doing or anything similar? Hmm. I think this comes... So, so there's, there, there, there are two answers to this. So yes, I do. So for example, with Nissan, uh, we will use, we worked, we presented it to their, uh, their designers of the car and we had a data workshop where they reflected on what they created. And I think data, scientific data, particularly biomedical data, can be used to reflect on a design or to uh, improve the efficiency of an existing design. I think certainly um, artistic practice, creative flair... Uh, is the other 95%, which is like the, the showman's tacit kind of understanding. But I think um, institutions like the Wellcome Trust, and when you're looking at... I think, actually, you know, you could safely say my, my practice is very much digital arts and the funding would have come from the arts stream mm -hmm. of the Wellcome Trust. And, um, and the same with the EPSRC, that you see the relationship between artists, designers, creative people, creative, making creative use of data... Are often funded by what's essentially their marketing budgets. And the, the actual impact and the, the um, let's say, the, the balancing, the, the, the dialogue, the, the, the conversation between the two sides, sometimes um, I question that, and I'll question it quite openly, saying, are we having impact back down the stream? Sometimes I need to do it to... It's fine to be able to to demonstrate, to infuse the public, to do public engagements, to engage them with ideas, but actually, um, am I engaging research and science with those ideas? Sometimes we can, and other times you just have to go, we're not, we're not penetrating. And that, that can be really frustrating. But you don't know when you do a piece of public work 
who's actually looking, who's being inspired. And that's one of the, the biggest issues, I think, with, with digital art or any art, is you don't know the, the social, you have social and cultural uh, impact, but where you're seeing, where, let's say, scientists or engineers are looking at that, and which are also very creative practices, who you're influencing, you just never know. So I think it's very hard to actually assess um, what that, how those conversations are happening. Mm. Yeah. From a more personal level, how did you get involved in exploring um, sort of, uh, the reactions, emotion, emotional reactions of people on thrill rides? And, and your, or kind of how did you get to, get to creating so many different immersive experiences through data? Mm. It was... So the, 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 uh, when I was making those large mechanical sculptures... Um, and I took, it was almost like a, a break from making. And I started looking at psychology uh, surrounding and, and, and ethnography and other um, related disciplines which were associated to the emo emotional experience of thrill. Um, I, uh, the results of my exploration, I published in two booklets called The Taxonomy of Thrill, where, where it's pretty much a blueprint for designing thrilling experiences, all available on Amazon. Um, sorry, shameless. <laughs> um, the Taxonomy of Thrill, which is a blueprint for designing thrilling experiences. Thrilling Designs, the companion volume, which are two explorations of how uh, my techniques might be used in the design. One of a, a theme park, which was inspired by air disasters, and also then another, a, a new dining experience, which was, had robots and mechanical contrivances in it. But it was in the appendix of the Taxonomy of Thrill, uh, where having been trained as an engineer, I thought we've got quantities here. Knowing that people were talking in terms of pleasure and, and arousal, these were two really important components in people's self-reporting of their thrilling experience. And, and I noticed that people self-reported experiencing thrill when there was a rapid and large increase in pleasure and arousal. And I knew at the time there was a scientist called, um, I'll remember her name in a moment, uh, from MIT, who is uh, studying arousal side and looking for the startle effect, uh, Ross Picard. Uh, um, I thought, there's, there's a component missing, there's pleasure. So I created a formula which was called the Walker Thrill Factor, which related these emotional components. And then I thought, if we have these quantities, can we actually monitor them? So I started looking for ways, biomedical monitoring ways and other ways to determine these, these emotional quantities. And could they be determined not only as a snapshot of emotions, but live and, you know, evolving these, these fluctuating, like fluctuating emotions. And I think once I'd done that, um, I, I realised that there was a relationship between our emotional experience. But, but actually, he's, he's in the room today, uh, uh, Simon Opie, who was the, the, the CEO of Hastings Pier, before that, Simon had seen uh, my booklets and Simon was running the, the creative studios for, the, for Tussor Studios. And... Um, I, I very publicly said that I would never work in the theme park industry when I gave my first talk about Thrill at Tate Modern, uh, which Hannah Redler was also at. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and my opinions changed. I suddenly realised that were, there was an absolutely... Um, uh, they were so tightly combined and there was a real yeah. skill in art and it was deeply tied in, in, in economics and business. And so I realised there was value. So that's what, that really set me off on the pursuit. It was actually finding that what I was interested in had relevance to, uh, to other industries. Brilliant. Um, are there any, uh, we have a question. 
think from the very person you were just describing. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's going to uh, correct my uh, version of history. <laughs> no, um, I just wanted to ask something about the issue of the liveness of the experience, because um, obviously the, the Hastings project that I am familiar with, you know, I think from observation, the thing people missed was the way this equipment is reacting is, is in real time linked to what's going on um, with the wave patterns on the sea. Yeah. And similarly, when people go to a theme park or go for a, a thrilling experience, quite often they're in quite a, a passive frame of mind. You know, it's okay, just do something to me and I'll tell you whether it was any good or not sort yeah. of thing. So I'm wondering whether through your researches you've been able to evaluate how much added value is given by the liveness, if you like, of the experience. Mm. So have you, have you experienced sort of uh, environments where what you've added that works in real time has demonstrably, I guess, increased the thrill of the riders? Yeah. Um, there's, so I've got some anecdotal evidence, but there are... Uh, papers that have been written by, uh, by the University of Nottingham, which, which deal a lot with liveness and, and performance. But I think, uh, so the observations I have, which are kind of borne out in those papers, um, are, um, so firstly, there was the very first time I started using live data at the Science Museum was uh, in this uh, experimental context with the booster, where uh, a rider at the tip, was kitting out with equipment, streaming live data in. There was a live audience of a couple hundred people in the Science Museum who couldn't see the ride on the ride. And I would, that really concerned me because there was a... So we, we carefully engineered the sense of the liveness as far as getting the, uh, the participants uh, on stage, getting, uh, starting to create emotional engagement with them, with the audience, introducing this winner, uh, kitting them up in uh, what would look like a... a, a a fairground astronaut's outfit, sending them out, and then the person starting to report back in over this, this uh, stream of data. So there was something about um, uh, that initial emotional engagement which was really important, and then um, for it to work. Um, and you could see, particularly when the data stream on one of the nights... And also I was giving a live commentary in, the, in that particular... Uh, scenario. So I was able, a little bit like um, a horse racing commentator, to, um, to a little bit control the emotional flow and the emotional engagement. And my, because of the vicarious nature of emotions, I was able to direct the audience towards the, the importance of the live feed. Um, and it wasn't until that live feed was broken, which was horrific on that, on that well, it felt horrific. I thought, shit, what are we going to do? Live show. Uh, but people in the audience became really agitated and very worried that something was wrong with the person on the ride. And so that, that, uh, they were absolutely invested in that, that live stream being a, um, uh, an embodiment of that person's experience and well-being, I think. Uh, where it didn't work in, in comparison was at a horror film festival where I was monitoring, um, uh, well, I call them patients in this particular Thing. It, was, it was a project called self-examination, and they were kitted up. They were wheeled into the uh, auditorium in a, in a in a wheelchair. It was kitted out with the uh, instruments of uh, monitoring, uh, a camera, 
again, live feed of them watching uh, a theatre, uh, you know, a cinema experience. But, that, but what you described as people uh, consuming passively, in a sense, all that people outside the cinema got. And I gave people outside the cinema no other clue other than a live stream of this person watching a horror film with their medical data. Uh, it was all very 1970s kind of uh, feeling to the graphics. And all this person did was just stare. And they were just... And I suddenly realised that I mean, it, was, it was a dead expression, uh, even though the data was moving. And it was, it was kind of interesting. Uh, but then on the next night, I then had to, in to include a, uh, a live uh, typed transcript of what was going in, on in the film, which then became... I mean, I, it was full of typos. And it became sort of slightly comedic and also sort of a, a foil against that, 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 that person's experience. And it didn't work that, you know, there, there, there was a significant lack of emotional engagement with, with that person. And I think it was, again, because they didn't know who they were. But there was one other ride uh, when, when we did the gas masks and we took that to Thorpe Park to the um, Saw Alive, where in the audience there were members of the family unit. Uh, the mother had gone into the, uh, it was a horror maze, you know, a, a, a horror maze where, where there were sort of vignettes from Saw, the film. It's pretty horrific. And they were wearing my gas masks, so I was monitoring their breathing, but also we were able to see their, their faces using night vision cameras. And then all we could hear, and they were also broadcasting, and all we could hear were screams coming out. And the, uh, the woman outside, was, the daughter, was bordering on, on becoming very distressed because her mother... Uh, wasn't having a great time, she was screaming, she was, you know, and all these emotions coming out and absolutely infecting this part. So there was a very strong emotional bond between the, the participants and the viewer. And to such an extent, she wanted me to go in and withdraw the person again. I refused. And um, when the mother came out, because I knew the mother could walk out at any stage of her own accord, <clears throat> when she came out and took the gas mask off, there were tears coming down her eyes, but she was laughing hysterically. And, and so there was, again, I realised, it made me feel very uncomfortable with that relationship between the performer and the spectator, you know, and that, that is the ultimate connection, I suppose, you know, mother and daughter or, you know. Um, so I think if you can build up that character, and obviously in, in TV shows, they build characters very well to, uh, for you to develop a deep sense of empathy. So I think that's critical then before you start introducing extra layers of data. I don't think the data can do it itself. It needs the, the extra, you know, that, that, that dramatic um, construct to work in. Brilliant. Um, the final question is, how can people follow your work? <laughs> I was going to go, there. Okay, so on the, on the screen uh, behind you, so I have three incarnations. So if you, so the Thrill Laboratory and the Thrill Engineer, me, uh, you can follow here at Thrill Laboratory. Um, Studio GoGo -Go is the new venture which was funded by Innovate UK. So this is the, uh, the tech startup we created last year, which is purely looking at uh, developing uh, thrilling experiences for mobile VR headsets for pre-existing rides. So as I say, that one, the one to watch if you want to come and ride a ride that we're developing for this year. And then Ariel's my um, artistic practice. So in a sense, that's the real me. And these two, uh, Studio GoGo -Go and Thrill Laboratory, are kind of uh, fabrications that have come out of my uh, creative practice. Thank you.
yeah, so any one of those. But I usually cross-fertilise with tweets and stuff. So pick up any one of those and you'll find me. Brilliant. That's great. Thanks so much, Brendan. And Thank thanks, everyone, for coming. Just give one final round of applause. Thank you. You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.